G'day. Welcome to Radio Notes. Simon Taylor is our feature guest this episode on Radio Notes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. We'll hear from him in just a moment. Before we get to it, just want to remind you, if you haven't already, to subscribe or follow, the reason being that way you won't miss an episode via iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. Can arrive every Monday as it's released on a Sunday, ready for your working week, if that's how you roll. You can also get in contact, radionotes at writeme.com, that's W-R-I-T-E-M-E dot com. The show's website has a transcript available for you if you want to read back on any of the conversations, radionotespodcast.com. With no further ado, let's introduce our feature guest. Simon Taylor has written for Jay Leno, as well created words for Sean McCaleb's Mad as Hell and Netflix's Magic for Humans. Taylor, though, is more than a comedian. He's also been a successful host of the TV show Live on Bowen and can be super quick with his hands in the magical sense when given a pack of cards. And in this chat with Radio Notes, shares plans for future books, plural, and sharing hints of return to TV hosting on a major Australian network. Simon Taylor, welcome to Radio Notes. Thank you so much. Great to catch up with you. <laughs> I love that you say welcome, but I mean, you came to me, so I'm very appreciative. We're at the pinnacle of the Adelaide Fringe. Just yesterday was the Adelaide Fringe Festival Car Race Writers Week extravaganza oh that goodness. we have. It was too much. And then after that weekend, you have Monday shows while you're here. I just sort of hid away during all the, the noise and commotion and then... I come out on a quiet, peaceful Monday and do my show to a very relaxed, calm audience. And you're in the garden as well, which is a well-established venue, which, which is, is nice. great. Yes. It took me many years to get in there, but now that I'm there, I never want to leave. Will Anderson normally is a staple there. It'd be That's his true. 23rd Adelaide show, but he's got some other things on. So great comedians like yourself get to fill that spot a bit. Yeah, I, well, I, I think so. I think it's actually, it helps when Will's around. It brings more people to the garden and then more people get to see what other shows are on. So I actually, I'm all for all the big name acts being here because it just creates more of a buzz. And then we uh, we get to associate with them and rub shoulders with them. So I like it. Husey's been around and Tom Gleason have been around and getting to gig with them and pick their brains about things. And when Will's around, we get to do that as well. So I like having them. Live at Bowen, which was mm. the show for which you hosted. You had Dave Hughes on that show. That's how he came on the show. I saw him at other gigs and I said, oh, I'd love to have you on the show. In fact, no, he, he brought it up to me. That's right. I was too nervous to bring it up to him because I thought I don't want to bug him. But he said, um, he said, oh, I, li- I really like the, uh, I like the show. I saw Sean McAuliffe on it. I said, oh, I'd really like you on it. He goes, oh, well, just message me. And he gave me his number. So he is so giving in that sense. I felt very gracious because... I think it, it, it's almost like getting a blessing from, you know, the, the the people that you look up to, your idols. When Sean came on the show and when Dave came on the show, it just meant like, oh, I feel like they're giving me their stamp of approval. It really felt like that to us because it's so easy for them to say no. Is there a sense of baton as well that they're giving a comedic baton? No, it feels like more of a welcome to the club. I don't think he's passing anything on. I don't think they're... Um, 
you know, putting putting anything down. He's not going to stop, and Sean's not going to stop. It's more like, hey, welcome to the game. You're in this now. It's going to be tough. And it's going to, you know, it's a crazy, crazy world uh, of, of trying to be on TV and doing lots of shows and keeping, you know, your profile up and things like that. They're still doing things to keep their profile up, and they're still pushing to keep their career going further. So they're not passing anything on to me. They're just saying, hey, this is the game, and, and welcome aboard. You're not a TV. You're not a radio star at the moment <laughs> that's very optimistic of you <laughs> well I, I state that because I'm very keen so is Rob McKnight of TV Black Box to have a TV variety show five nights a week it works in the States why can't it work here and more importantly before I get to that question would you put your hand up Simon Taylor to be the host of a five night a week or a four night a week TV variety show maybe at 9.30 on Channel 9 well, I've got a um, pilot with Channel 10 that I did last year for a show called Fun Times with Simon Taylor. So it's that exactly. And, mm-hmm. the, you know, I, I don't know how much I can say or not say, but I was told by someone at the network, it's like, oh, would you do this multiple times a week? And I said, yeah. So the tricky thing is because I, I'm not, I don't have a profile, it's actually hard to just get the show up quickly. TV cares about two things, ratings and revenue. And if you can't promise either of those, mm. then why would they put you up? So my argument has always been, hey, I've got the skill set to be the host. I can show you my live and bond. I've written for The Tonight Show. I've done all these. I've got the skill set to be able to do this. So my argument is I, I, I won't be a, a ratings and revenue giant immediately. Right. I might not be that for a year or two or three years or whatever, but I know I have the skills to be able to build that because I've done it on other shows. I know I can do jokes that are worthy of The Tonight Show, the biggest late night talk show in the history of television. I can do that and I've proven to do that. And I know I can reach an Australian audience because I've written for Sean McAuliffe. So I know how to write for an Australian audience too. Uh, I know how to come up with hit shows. I wrote for a show called uh, Magic for Humans on Netflix and that was number one last year. So I know this feels like I'm sort of bigging myself up, but this is my sales pitch. Well, the pilot you know, went well and it appears to be going forward into a series, but it's so slow and there's so many things that could fall apart. So I don't know if I have a series or not. Right. I don't know if there's enough funding over the line to get it there. So I, I've been told, yes, we want this, but I haven't been told when. I haven't been told if we, how many episodes. I've been given a loose time slot to work towards. So it is something that when I first started, it was exactly what I wanted. So I'm with you. I'm appreciative that you, you, you bring it up and you're, you're rooting for me because I, I am pushing for that. But it is such a marathon and that your fate is in so many other people's hands. So for me, I'm always saying to my agents, what else can I do? They're like, you're doing everything right. I'm like, yeah, but what else? <laughs> Just give me the formula. And there is no formula. So we're super happy with the pilot. It's, it, you know, we're super proud of it. The whole team were incredible. They're all people that worked on the community TV with me. So our argument to them was just put, don't give us a prime time spot. Just give us something off the radar. Let's not over promote it. Let's just get us the like, you know, blood new talent. Let's just get, you know, put us on that journey. That's what they did sign with. Have you been paying attention? Right. And it took a little while. Yeah. That that was nearly axed, but they, they also, you know, I think there's a is a history of of that with Working Dog. Like they were able to say, yeah, we've done that. We've been here and done this. But with a new person, it's a, so. Well, that's what I'm trying to say. I'm like, I've been here and been there and done that with shows in America and Australia. So 
Yeah, I mean, that tricky position of, well, why would they pick someone like me? It is that job of what I was doing before of just trying to sell myself, which is inherently cringeworthy to a comedian because mm. most of the time self-deprecation is my mode and it's also particularly not an Australian thing to go hey I'm great I've written for this and I've done this and I'm really great performer and I, that's actually really hard to say and I'm already worried about the listeners going who does this guy yeah. think yeah. So, so it's my job to yeah. interrupt by saying yeah. I putting not my house I'm, I'm not that confident <laughs> <laughs> putting my Your roof my, <laughs> of the garage out the back <laughs> On top of the portaloo. No, I'm putting my heart and soul and have for a number of years behind Simon Taylor because there's one thing I've seen you do on Live at Bowen and mm. people can see if they've seen your work is that you're not just the comedian or the host out the front. You're also the team player as well. Right. And I think about the lovely comments that Lauren Bock and other talented comedians have said about you over the years mm. is that you're in the trenches with them. Right. How much do you put that as part of your CV, as being part of one of the team members, one of the people in the trenches of what's being produced. Yeah, I think that's just a matter of um, how I see myself getting better. I think maybe it's just a low status thing. It's just, oh, I'm not good yet, so I need to be practicing. I need to be doing gigs every night, and I need to be in the writer's room listening to everyone and contributing. So I think it's a matter of I want to be better, and the best way is to, to be in the, 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 the trenches, to be in the writer's room, to do all those open mic gigs because I don't really look at other comedians, but every now and again I think to myself, they never do gigs. How are they going to have a good show? You know, they've got profile now, they're on TV or they got, you know, mm. radio gigs or things like that. But if you want to be a stand-up, if you want your show to be good stand-up, how's that going to happen? You see that with YouTubers. YouTubers were big when their YouTube videos went viral and they had these massive audiences. But over the years, it, it's sort of crumbled. And maybe, you know, they've done well and they've made enough money to, you know, store away or to get a house in that time they were big. But someone I admire coming up with someone like Nick Cody was just a, a workhorse he just do gigs all the time he at the time when these YouTubers were big he was small he had small crowds but over time you see that it's sort of swapped and he's built up a big crowd and he's going to have it longer and retain it longer because people come to his shows knowing he's a great stand-up so what I want to kind of provide is that if I'm going to be good at TV I have to do all the things that make you good at TV, be in the writer's room, test the jokes, watch other people, be around other people, listen and learn from other people. So it's it's just this constant drive to self-improve. How do you, Mr. Taylor, fit yourself into mm. that concept of this longevity, which you've clearly explained to us just there, mm. when the public seems to just want the next big thing? No, I think that's all bullshit. And the reason I think that is because I was just reading a book called Seinfeldia. It was all about Seinfeld. And at the time, Seinfeld was pitching. All the sitcoms were heartfelt and they had these stories and it was set up punchline jokes. And Seinfeld came along and it wasn't, it was conversational. You know, that, that, that first dialogue with Elaine is, uh, she goes, oh, do you want to go get something to eat? He goes, oh, where do you want to go? She goes, I don't care, I'm not hungry. Like that style had never really been done for just sort of a back and forth chat. And there were no, the, the, the story arcs, there was no like learning, no hugging, no learning was a thing. It, it just really broke the mold of, of sitcoms. So, and none of the characters were likable as well. So the network, when they were, you know, 
getting Seinfeld were like these characters aren't likable and there's no you know closing story and it's not the dialogue so weird everyone's saying this wouldn't work it didn't fit the mold but the reason it got up was because of Jerry's profile was so good and his manager was so good that they kind of pulled favors and they believed in him so it shouldn't have gotten up under the climate of this is what a sitcom is so let's take that to now my friend works at YouTube and he said every time someone at YouTube says oh 10 minute videos are what works then someone will come along with a 30 second video that blows up and does 30 second videos every week and then that's the biggest thing so anyone who says this is what works has a tiny imagination because it always changes and there is always something that breaks a mold and the nature of art and comedy and entertainment is that people will get sick of formulas and then the next and something different will come along and that'll become the formula so after Seinfeld was popular networks were looking for things that were like Seinfeld so first they you know say you will never work then someone tries you then it's a success and then they try to imitate you and then the cycle continues how good are you in the comedy kitchen these days I really enjoy tinkering with jokes I think that's the the really fun part I think maybe there's an analogy to like a TV chef like you know there's the showbiz part of it but they still like cooking they still love you know getting that perfect omelette or whatever it is so I like that with a joke when I feel like I've got a joke that will just work everywhere all the time the opening joke of my show now I'm just so happy with it I just got the timing right and the wording right and there's no word that doesn't need to be there love the mechanics of comedy and that's sort of that comedy nerd in me more than anything so it's interesting playing those different levels you know there's the joke writing there's the booking and performing gigs and then there's the high level stuff like your profile and what you're doing on tv but I still have a real love for just writing a joke what's one of your favorite moments with the audience what part of the show maybe it is that opening joke Mm. that is the fave my favorite moment with the audience is when I'm I'm trying not to laugh. I'm trying to get on with the bit and they're enjoying me <laughs> enjoying the show. So say a joke and then they react in an odd way or there's a gasp or something from the crowd and I start laughing and I try to continue. I try to get on with the bit, but I can't. So when the audience makes me laugh or the situation makes me laugh or something's ha- happened, that's the best bit because they've broken my armor in a sense of not just delivering jokes at you I'm part of this I'm organic I'm interacting with you so I like when the audience (laughs) derails me a little bit and I have to get back on track let's talk about the importance of listening then because Uh my understanding I I would have learned this from Will Anderson is the fact that some of the best jokes Mm. in a show is when you're listening to the audience's reaction coming back at you yeah yeah how is that for you Yeah, I think the audience decides what's funny about you. You can't go on and say, I've decided this is funny and this is what is going to make you laugh. Really, you you go to those smaller rooms and you say, here's a bunch of stuff and you kind of go in that direction. It's almost like, um, you know, like a plant will always grow towards the light and I think a comedian's material will always go towards the laughs. You listen in in terms of what is funniest about me. If I make jokes about politics, do people like that from me? If I make jokes about sex, do people like that from me? If I make jokes about 
the way I look, to, you know, in my like Tom Gleason is a good example. He does this sort of high status thing. It's like I'm great and I'm cool and you're idiots and whatever. Like that is what we find funny about him. So I don't think he sat in his bedroom and decided I'm going to be high status. I think he just over the years realized people laugh a lot when I'm high status. So I'm going to continue to do that. The audience would have told him through laughter that's the direction you need to go. And I feel the same with what I do. I just listen to the crowd. What's the audience's perception do you perceive of you? Yeah, I, th- I think the comments I get a lot are, <laughs> oh, I love that you're clean or I love that it's clever or witty comedy or that you don't swear. And what's funny to me is I do, I do swear, but people, maybe they just, it doesn't register or maybe I just don't do it as conversationally. I think a swear word is like a technique for a joke. Like there's a reason it's there. It's not really just like a habit. But yeah, I think perception of me maybe is, I think that I'm perceived as high status and then it's funny when I do things that undercut that. So, you know, I'm well-groomed and I wear nice jackets and, you know, I have sort of a, a educated accent to some degree. So then when I fail and I suck and I do something stupid or I'm hopeless, that's funny because it breaks this you know, aura of being a well-off, middle-class, upper-middle-class, you know, city boy. So undercutting that is what's funny and what's funny to me. How much do you rely on your university degree in psychology for comedy? Mm, I think it, it helps in the sense of not taking a single experience too seriously. Because when you study psychology and understand the gamut of human behavior and that to understand anything, you need massive sample groups and you need a lot of information, a lot of research. So if you have a bad experience in a stand-up show or a difficult experience with a heckler, you just, you've got to put in this perspective of humans are these really complicated, multifaceted things. So it's, it's kind of given me a, a more of a wisdom than a, a, a sort of a practical understanding, I think. So there's not a second guessing of the audience with it? It doesn't dictate my material. It just, when I'm thinking about, you know, stand-up in general, having done psychology just gives me a, more of a, a clinical approach to it. Like, hey, I don't take any of this personally. This is what this is consider everything an experiment what happens if i do this okay that happened all right what happens if i do this so it's more of a yeah it's more of a clinical approach to the whole practice of of being a stand-up rather than oh man why didn't that crowd like me i don't take it as personally i at least understand how you know people behave doesn't always come down to you there are too many variables we're currently in conversation with Simon Taylor. His current touring show is called Right Now, and you can find Funny from 2014 on Spotify if you want to hear some oh, of his material true. there. Including, of course, the Adelaide onesie joke, uh, onesie set in there as well. Oh, it is how, on there as well. Yeah. How's Jessica? So that's based on a woman who lives in the UK. I saw her last year. She's as wild as ever. <laughs> Yeah, nothing ever really came of it, but she, you know, she knew, she knows that she was that story, and but she's so wild and loose and crazy and fun that she, you know, she doesn't care. So when you're around her, she's still just, hey, let's go do this and let's go hang out. So it, it's sort of funny that it, it didn't really phase her, and she's still the same, you know, sort of fun person to be around. And learned a little bit about the bro code with Jared as well. 
I'll be honest, that ending is for the sake of the joke. Mm. I mean, that guy, I think he's married with kids now. Oh, which reminds me, uh, mm-hmm. The Bachelor, because there was a Jared uh, in The Bachelor. Uh, are you applying for The Bachelorette? I don't think so. I, I think about Season it. Season five. I know. I, Adelaide's like, had a good run. I'd, you like Adelaide? <laughs> I'd like to hang out with Osher because he's a great dude. But uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't think I could compete with the other dudes. I think I'd be out really quickly. Like, I just, I feel, you know, they'll be taller and they'll have bigger muscles and they'll be more, more attractive and I'll just be this, you know, dorky little comedian that'll probably say something stupid you're not that short so you are I'm five seven i'm tom cruise height what is it about osher ginsburg that you particularly engage with well he helped me with the pilot last year he was in a sketch in the pilot and so we reached out to him because i had an idea for a sketch and he was so on board and so cool and funny he, was, he like nailed the sketch from there i sort of became friendly with him and then read his book and We've just been in touch with him and, you know, email and phone. So it's, it's kind of feel like I have an ally now. Yeah, he's awesome. Autistic kids. Mm-hmm. I used to work with autistic kids, study psychology. And then while I was doing that, I was becoming a behavioral therapist, which was essentially correcting behaviors for autistic kids. So I worked with maybe 13 or 14 kids over about four years, tried to develop normalized behavior with them and to reduce the extreme behaviors that a lot of them had improve their eye contact their language skills their uh, emotional regulation and whatnot and a lot of my skills as an entertainer sort of came from constantly having to entertain kids because every time they did something we wanted we had to reinforce it with magic tricks or funny faces or making them laugh or you know being active and fun so uh i think that my entertainment skills really played a big factor and so i I often think about oh i'd I'd like to do that again but you have to sort of commit to a a child or a case for at least a year which i wouldn't be able to do so Mm. i really like that you know problem solving sort of um job and yeah i miss it i miss it a lot and try to visit the kids occasionally but to some degree you know your goal is to not be in their life anymore you know for them to no longer need you so yeah so working with those kids for for a long time was sort of yeah sort of shaped the sort of entertainer that, that I am just being fun and playful which is that of multi-skilling as well because you're not just a comedian you're mm. also a magician Talk us through that and when, when you look at your career, maybe for the coming three, six months to a year, mm. how do you decide which aspects of your multi-talented bank to use? Well, yeah, I think it's just, and I never l- limited myself. I don't believe the categories are that useful. Why have them really? I think it's, you know, when you go to a fringe guide, they'll put it, you know, cabaret here and comedy here and whatnot. But for me, it's, well, what do I want to say? What do I want the audience to experience? And so if I want the audience to experience something uplifting, well, then music is really good for that. Like a big musical song. I think a few years ago I had a yeah big musical finale because I wanted the audience to feel that. So as a stand-up, you know, to be able to do that, I think it's sort of tricky. Maybe you could do it in a story, maybe... You could do it in a, a spoken word poem to some degree, but I think I, I, I start with what do I want the audience to feel and what tools do I have to get there? 
And so if I want the audience to feel amazed or intrigued or the magic is the tool, or if I want them just to have feel like something is silly, then I dance. Like I'll do silly, dumb dancing. I'll dance like an idiot. So my goal is the audience experience and I'll use whatever I need to to get that. So I, yeah, I don't need a de- I don't need a label. I think it's just, you know, entertainer, really. What was the first album that Simon Taylor bought? Very much a rock quiz question, bought with your own money, of course. Yeah. Oh, this is tricky. It might have been Craig David. It could have been Craig David. Seven Days, I think, was the album. That's possible. No, you know what? It wouldn't be. <sighs> How do I do this? So I would have bought Elvis on cassette when right. I was like five years old. And then probably Craig David or Usher or something like that. And then Michael Jackson. So, yeah, I know this is a non-answer, but it's I, it's so tricky to pinpoint. All right, but yeah. R&B-ish? It would have been R&B, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, definitely. R- R&B and hip-hop for a long time. Yeah, definitely that side of things. What was on your mixtape at university? What, what were you giving uh, people of the... Uh, you know, that you're interested in? What music were you sharing with them at uni on a mixtape? Hypothetically, what yeah. was I sharing with people? Yeah, particularly those of a bit of a, a love interest. Was Bonnet, no, Kanye. It would have been Kanye. Kanye during uni, yeah, so... Were you going Bonnet, Bonnet over there? I was going to say Bonnie Ver, but I think that was just after. Right. I think that was just after uni, yeah. So that's what I would have sent sent people. Um, but yeah, it, was, it would have been Kanye during uni for sure. What's in the jukebox now for Simon Taylor, particularly mm. while you're writing this material and getting ready for a possible TV appearance? Still a lot of rap music. I liked Eminem's recent album, The New Guys. I like all those new uh, mumble rap that everyone talks about. Mac Miller is actually, that's been my number one album last year. Mac Miller was very sad when he passed away last year, but that album I played a lot and that's uh, been a big inspiration. So Mac Miller is probably number one at the moment. When they do pass away, mm. how, how do you then look at their work? I don't know. I get super emotional. I'm a very emotional boy. So I, I kind of, um, I, w- I actually withdraw into their work. So I will put Mac Miller's album on and just not do anything that day. Like I might go to the gym, but I'll be listening to <laughs> Mac Miller on the way there, do my work and listen on the way back and just sort of sit and listen. So I, I will stop what I'm doing to listen. I certainly do that with music. I, I I don't generally like music while I'm working or writing or creating. I think it's something that I stop and listen to. And so an artist kind of has to, for me, be worthy of stopping and listening to. If it's like a, that's why I probably don't listen to house or rock or pop that much because lyrically, if there's too much repetition and they're not saying much, then it's like, why did I stop to listen to this? This is background music. This is, mm-hmm. you know, what the gyms play. But rap, I feel like has, they've got something to say and it's intricate and you, you listen in, you listen multiple times and you pick up different things each time. So I really get immersed in it. And, and I think when Mac Miller died, I really got into it because I was just emotionally in a place where, I wanted to feel sort of close to him again because I'd listened to his music for a long time and realising, oh, this is the last one. This is the last album we get from him. And on this day, um, only a few hours ago, we learned about the passing of um, Keith Flint of Prodigy. Yeah, right. Yeah, that was yesterday, right? So, so there's a lot of people going through that kind of 
emotion yeah. as well, I guess, today. When actually, I only heard it last night. And uh, now that you've reminded me, I'm probably going, probably going to sit and listen to him the rest of the day because I think I'll go through that that same same emotion and try to listen in and try to feel close to him again. Is there a reinterpretation of their music as well? So not just listening to what they were saying, but maybe looking a bit deeper for some reason. Sure, but I think that happens with whatever mo- emotional state you're in. I remember I was dating a girl throughout uni. She introduced me to the band The Kooks. Yeah. And when I listened to that album, I'm like, oh man, this album's all about love and having a pretty girl and this this is what this album's about. And then we broke up. I listened to the album again. I'm like, wait a second. This is about a breakup. Like I, I actually heard all these lyrics that I'd never really tuned into before. So your emotional state can affect what you're absorbing. Was she music. telling me something by giving me this album? Well, it was early in the relationship, so maybe it was, uh, yeah, foreboding. Hopefully not. Mm. Let's talk about the use of language with Simon Taylor. Oh, sure. So much we can talk about. What would you like to talk about, about the use of language? Because this is a bit of a pet project of yours. Well, it's just a pet interest, I guess. I've always enjoyed language. The start of the new show has a sort of a beat poem that started off. I just like... Beat poem? Yeah. Yeah, kind of a beat poem to it. Were you into the beat poems before we continue? Well, if we're talking about uh, selling myself again, Victorian Poetry Slam Champion 2011. Yeah, I did poetry competitions. I had this... I was super broke and I had this opportunity to compete in the uh, poetry championships in Victoria at the heats, the first heat. And I did it and I I didn't get through. I didn't get through to the next uh, stage. So I was so down about it. But the MC came up to me after and said, there's one more heat. You should come. I said, okay. But I looked at the day of the heat and it was either that or go to this restaurant for a, a job, uh, a shift, which I really didn't want to do. So I had this choice of like, okay, what do I actually want to be in life? Do I want to be an entertainer or do I want to just sort of get by with, you know, from, you know, restaurant work or whatever I need to mm-hmm. do? And I thought, no, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. So I remember I caught the bus, I caught the train out and I caught uh, like it was like a 40 minute train. And then I went to go get the bus and I just missed the bus and it was like a 35 degree day. I'm looking at the time, I'm about to miss the heat. I'm like, all right, maybe I should just go home. I might not make it. I thought, no, I'm gonna do this. And I ran in the heat towards the library and then I was on the wrong side of the road and I had to jump the fence over a construction site and I cut myself so now I'm bleeding and I'm sweating and I get in just in time. And I was so full of adrenaline and I was on first that I just like (laughs) powered through this, this spoken word poem and I got through and then I ended up winning the the championship and and that was kind of a powerful moment for me in general of you would rather risk failing in something you want to do than pick something safe that is you know doesn't bring you any joy so I kind of remind myself of that all the time and and so when it came to you know, moving into stand-up, I already felt like I had been involved in that dedication to mm. being a, a, a creative, in a sense. That's also a phenomenal position to come from because first up, mm. you pretty much would have owned that entire night because people need to remember you from first up all the way through. And the blood on my shirt. <laughs> yeah, that could have been. <laughs> the way that you describe language as well, mm. is there a book about language mm. in you? Yeah, actually, I wrote one. I wrote a book called How to Write a Joke, and it was all about constructing a joke and the linguistic tools and 
how to apply them. So yeah, I've, yeah, I've written it, um, but it's. Uh, I clearly haven't done my research. No, 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 but it's not published. I've written it oh. and it's sitting on my laptop. So okay, so just repeating, yeah. it hasn't been published. No, so I shouldn't feel guilty that I no, haven't no, done my research. No, 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 cool. it's it's this is breaking news. I'm constantly writing and creating, and so there's all sorts of projects that are on my laptop. That I mean, this is a novel that is. Uh, this will be published. This has got a, a deal. This is a novel. Yeah, so my show last year was called Happy Times and it was all about being told I was going to be a dad um, and then being told I might not be the dad and then going through this rigmarole of nine months trying to work out if I was the dad or not before finally getting a paternity test. I did the show and then a publisher saw it and said, oh, this should be a book. So now I'm 30,000 words into it as a novel. So... Yeah, going back to your early question of, of language, I think I have fascination with, with language and I like studying it to get the full potential out of it. I think it's that that toolbox thing again. If I want to create a novel and really share the emotion of the experience and the ridiculousness of it and the comedy of it and the drama of it, I want to be in full control of that that set of tools. So... I guess my fascination with language comes from that idea of how do I affect people and, and move people and, and, and give them the experience I want. So that plays into that whole uh, entertainer thing again, having all these tools, but also now as a writer. So uh, the novel is based upon Happy Times, which mm-hmm. was last year's production, as you mm-hmm. said, about mm-hmm. not knowing whether or not you're a father or not. Mm-hmm. We were talking about a book about language, about mm-hmm the language of comedy or how words are constructed i guess mm-hmm. a companion piece to tim ferguson's cheeky monkey for example maybe yeah he's i think he's is broader in the sense of like television writing and sitcom writing and how to like the, the bigger picture stuff so i think his one is probably architecture and mine is more how to hammer a nail into the wall mine is sort of the minute details with the yeah the the joke book would be this is how you construct a joke from scratch. It's slightly, slightly different. It's more about the building blocks. Mm. Same yeah. section of the library, though. I'd say so. Yep. Yeah. Simon Taylor, have you written a children's book? Yeah, I wrote a kids' book. So when I got the deal for the novel, I actually mentioned, oh, I've written some other stuff. So I sent that joke book. I sent some kids' books I, I'd written, and they liked one of them called Sally and the Magical Sneeze. And it was just a joke I wrote for my godchildren because, you know, I... Yeah, like providing them stories and making things up and it just came out of just being silly. And so I was kind of lucky the book got picked up just as a as an extra to the novel. So, yeah, that was illustrated by a friend of mine named Anita Lester. What kind of illustrations does she do? Super bright and colourful, watercolour-based. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. I think I really like that she seems to be like old school about it just really wants that the detail of her ink on paper and or, or watercolor on paper uh, as opposed to overly computerized which i feel is the sort of direction a lot of books have taken now they seem to be colored and done up on computer where i like she was sort of classic about it like panels of yeah. artwork that you can yeah. actually pull out take the words out maybe and just appreciate it that level yeah for as well. sure yeah definitely What's Sally? Sally's just sick at home in bed and is sad she has no one to play with her and then she sneezes and all sorts of weird animals come out of her mouth and she starts playing with them and there's like a fox with slinkies instead of arms and there's a 
bear on a bike and a cat with a book for a body and all sorts of silly, ridiculous things. You'll probably dislike this question or it'll come a blank, but I'll ask it anyway. And, and it is that of, are audiences that different from city to city, country to country? Yeah, but I think the ver- I mean, the variables are always so dense and they're changing. There's so many. So yes is the short answer, but there's no discernible way to pinpoint it in an easy way. I guess comedians talk about Melbourne audiences versus Sydney audiences and things like that. But I don't know, man. You've, you've always got to adapt regardless. Like you could be in Melbourne and from one gig to the next you have to adapt. Here you're in front of 20 people in a small venue and here you're in front of 400 people at you know crown casino or whatever you have to adapt there anyway mm. so if you're now you know in a different city or a different country you've got to adapt to the room itself you've got to adapt to what the mc did you've got to adapt to the weather that day you've got to adapt to what was in the news that day and you've got to adapt to the cultural you know aspect so i think it's just another variable that we're constantly changing to it's, it doesn't seem that big a deal. What I also saw from the documentary, this is just a short 10-minute look mm. into your life. Mm. An ISIS book, Sonny's Pack of Cards, are on your desk in mm-hmm. your old apartment. <laughs> I didn't even realise. Yeah, I was just reading a book on ISIS. I think it was... Um, I was just trying to educate myself on what was going on and why that situation happened. What else was on there? Sonny's? Uh, Sonny's? Yep. Deck, Deck of Cards. Deck of Cards, yeah. 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 yeah, I would have had that. Well, cards are something, if you want to be good at cards and shuffling and things like that, something you've got to kind of keep up all the time. Yeah. So that's why that it makes sense. There. But yeah. the thing that did grab me, right of your old desk, was a framed photo of the cast of Live at Bowen. Would that be the... the yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. I think we really cherished our time together because we we were all none of us got paid so we were all there because we loved doing it and and i think that's something we shared and that camaraderie was is something i really value that we all had the same drive and the same passion to be there because no one was paying us and no one was our boss we were there because we wanted to be there and i think that's that's something you probably you, you may not get with a uh, you know at a workplace people are there because they need to pay bills but we were there because we loved doing it and with the demise it appears of community television that's mm. becoming more and more of a challenge as well yeah i'm hoping it's still i mean the digital channel's still there it's still gets some funding from universities which i think is super important as part of the courses so i think it'll i think it'll evolve and it'll morph you know, people are still making shows at RMIT in Melbourne, so that's good. I just, I, I would like more active support, I think. I think networks would be smart to use the digital channels, just put a little bit of money aside for up-and-comers, because a lot of it is people trying to get on ABC2. That's really, like, for new comedy and for untested talent, they go to ABC2, and, and, it's, and it's crowded. I think other networks would be wise in going, hey, we've got digital channels now. We need to fill a quota of Australian content. Yep. There are people who are willing to work, you know, for next to nothing because they want to break into the industry, you know, and we, we were really good. We were really good at making something out of a $0 budget. Here's a free kick for you. Right at this very moment, who are those colleagues in that circle standing next to you or maybe just behind you? Who are those that we should be keeping an eye on? Peter Jones is an excellent comic and is still doing those multiple gigs a night in Melbourne, writes for the project now. He's been on ABC Up Late. He's uh, he's really still deep in the, the comedy trenches, as, as we say. So Peter Jones is doing a great job of 
just maintaining that hustle. Elizabeth Davy was just in, in Adelaide doing the Fringe. Claire Sullivan, incredible writer. So these, yeah, everyone's still working. I think everyone's still doing what we wanted to, what we intended to do. So yeah, those are those are my my co-stars who are still still plugging away. Yeah, and I mentioned Bock, of course, um, and Lauren Bock. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, well, she was. Um, I think we were both co- co-hosts together. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she's she's teaching comedy as well, and yep. yeah, so she's hustling in the comedy world. Simon Taylor, you worked with Jay Leno. Mm. What what was the experience having your paycheck and your final one, which was hung on your wall, oh, it was, so- yeah. signed by Jay Leno? Well, I think it. I, I always I reflect on it like just this lucky break. It was really surreal because it just doesn't seem like something that could happen. It doesn't seem like some open micer in Melbourne could turn up to LA and all of a sudden get a job writing for The Tonight Show and it just it it happened so randomly the sequence of events that took place for it to happen was it just seemed quite surreal Can you walk us through that because we've recently had I think Ronnie Chen Mm. getting onto the Mm. the late shows Mm. so talk us through the process back when when you got that break what was the sequence of events that just happened Right so I was just visiting LA a friend of mine I met him in Melbourne Comedy Festival, a comedian, and he said, oh, well, you can come stay at me if you ever want to come visit LA and just, you know, write some jokes for me or whatever. So I went over for two weeks and I only got one gig booked. It's very hard to get a gig booked in LA because there's a million comedians who want spots. And I did that show, the one show was at the back of a comic book store and a producer from The Tonight Show saw me there and he said, oh, do you want to come watch The Tonight Show? I said, yeah, I'd love to. And so I went and watched it, and it was incredible. It was very Hollywood. It was so showbiz. I was just in awe of it. And then afterwards, he said, oh, do you want to come back and meet Jay? I'm like, I guess so. And when I met Jay, I was just a smartass to him. I said, oh, I could write for you. And he said, oh, okay, yeah, well, let's, we'll send something in then. And so I turned to the producer. I'm like, did you hear him? He said I could send things in. So I went home that night. I wrote two pages of jokes. And the reason I could write two pages quickly was because I'd been on Twitter. I'd been practicing every day. I'd written, I'd written um, ten jokes a day for at least two years. That's when Twitter was great. Yeah, Twitter was great because it was only text, so people had to read your things. Yeah. But now it's a photo or a GIF or yeah. it's some, it's a news article or some outrage or people could actually share a quid back to mm. help your your art. Yeah, for sure. And there was a learning process. It was like what we were saying before of you people decide what's funny about you so you write a joke and if it got lots of retweets i knew it was good if it didn't i knew it sucked so i developed that skill so that night when i wrote two pages of jokes for leno and sent it in they're like yeah great because i'd had the skill ready and so i kind of feel that um with all the other endeavors you know the hopefully getting a, a tonight show or a variety show is I have the skills I've been working on them for free, mm-hmm. <laughs> so now it, let me let me sell them. And so uh, Leno was that opportunity. So it was really just going to LA on a whim and doing a getting being able to get a spot and going backstage and being a smartass to Jay and just relating to him as a comic. I've wanted to ask you regarding that. I think that's why I wanted to mention the Jay Leno experience is that of being an Aussie. Was mm. there a set of fresh eyes to the politics and the other things that were going on at all? He thought there might be. He said, all right, we'll get an Australian perspective. But Americans just care about themselves. So I had to really get my head in an American mode. So there were very few times where I think being Australian helped. I think I created an American mentality by the end of it 
did your personal politics, you don't have to say what they were, but mm. did your personal politics as an Australian help when you looked at what America was doing at the time? No, I think you just become a bit jaded by it all. It all looks like a machine. You feel like what you get in the media is all just a game. It's not actually reflective of the practices taking place because something small one side does becomes blown up by the other side and something, you know... Um, the other side that is does is really bad is swept under the rug because they use distractions. So I just thought the media, as I was doing it, was just one big machine to get attention and to weaponize and try hurt the other political party. So I'm cynical, if anything, after it um, about you know media being <laughs> representative. There, um, there's good journalism out there, and there are really good writers and people who do that but on the whole a lot of it is let's just keep these headlines pumping you also wrote for sean mccallif's mad as hell as Mm -hmm. well Mm -hmm. post jay leno from Mm -hmm. memory what was that experience like because i imagine sean mccallif is a great south australian adelaide Mm. boy today as you sit here in south australia um it was kind of difficult we were in a writer's room um you know churning away by ourselves like we were just sort of working on our own scripts and then pitching straight to Sean. So it wasn't a collaborative experience. But to be honest, I, I actually prefer that. But <laughs> I've been in writers' rooms where everyone's pitching and it feels like a dogfight to get your idea across. So I actually liked the way Sean did it. We just pitched to him and if he likes it, it's in. So I kind of, I, I, I think it was a good setup, but difficult because, you know, you're just churning you know you throw it's a shot in the dark it's like this do you like this Sean Eh, not really or do you like this yeah I do like that but I like it in this way like okay we'll change it so it was it was hard and good that it was hard because it it made me toughen up as a writer and really get um really refined really particular about how to write comedy and I always just spent a lot of time asking Sean questions and trying to sponge off him and learn from him and observe. Even though I was being paid, I took it as an internship. Like, this is how I get better. Did, did you toughen up your multi-skillness as well? Well, yeah, I think, I think it was... Um, well, writing the sketches was kind of new to me because I'd always written one-liners. So being able to, to, to take on another skill, to try learn another skill, I think... When you know that picking up a new skill is hard, it takes time and dedication and focus and repetition, I think getting into the sketch writing type of thing, I was aware, oh, this is something I need to go through that process. I need to practice and repeat and learn and whatnot. So in that sense, having learned multiple skills helped me realize, oh, I need to do another one. And yeah. What's the next decade for Simon Taylor like? Do you do that sort of five, ten-year plan? Oh, God. Um, I don't know. I do. It overwhelms me. Like in five years, I think I'd be... I'm going to be um, in multiple countries, you know, realistically. Still in your 30s, though? I'm 31. Right. So I think it's going to be part of the year in Australia and part of the year in America or the UK. I've just got offered to tour the UK at the end of the year and potentially sign with an agent there. And that like is wonderful opportunity, but also overwhelming to me. It's like, oh, well, I've got all these 
potential pathways. So in 10 years, I don't, I don't know. I'd like to think I'd, you know, have some control over the career and be able to pick what I want to do and don't want to do. But at the moment, it's now, uh, you know, this uncertainty of, well, what's the best pathway here? So I don't, I'd like to have a plan for five, 10 years. Mm. Um, but the reality is you kind of just got to wait and see because if I get work in Australia and in Australian TV, then I'm here. Mm. But if not, then I'll go overseas to other markets. So it's a, it's a wait and see type thing. So I, it's really the path of least resistance. I'll go to where the energy is. Three books as well in that mix, including the novel to the right of you as well. Mm-hmm. We'll what are you more passionate about, the writing or the performing? Um, I don't, yeah, I think performing is always number one for me. I don't know. I just I, I think creating, creating and doing projects is interesting to me. If there were an art project that I got passionate about, then I'd do that. And I think my mind just is is something that creates ideas, and then later I need to work out well what avenue is best for this. Is this a TV show? Is this a sitcom is this a t-shirt is this a book i try to put myself in a position where my mind can create and then i worry about what it becomes later let's round out with what has to be only classed as a hypothetical but it relates to music the hypothetical is is that you get a late night tv show on australian Uh tv that's hypothetical sure i want to know whether or not you would actively or what degree include music in such a project Oh, I mean, the pilot ends on a song. I sing the, I sing us out of the show. So yeah, there's a band and yeah, big part of it. Up and coming performers would they be part of such a thing? Um, maybe in this hypothetical. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to integrate them into to the band as well. Actually, to have guest, guest performers and things like that. So, I think there's, generally speaking, not just music. There's so much talent in Australia, and the platform seems small. And if I can in any way be a platform for young musicians, comedians, dancers, variety performers, that would be a real joy because I know the frustration of feeling like I have something to showcase but not having a platform to do it. So if I can be a platform for that, that would be very rewarding. Simon Taylor, it's been an absolute fascination. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Cheers. Simon Taylor. To see him live or just find out more, simontaylorcomedy.com or on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Simon Taylor. We've got a good solid four minutes left together, so I've also found a bit more of that Katie Manning from a while ago. Katie Manning was Joe Grant of Doctor Who, so let's... Dive into the archives. Let me ask you then, if we're going down that genre of music, the more commercial music... Very commercial, yeah. Yeah, and it's back to a Doctor Who question. I was not a Christine Aguilera or a Britney fan. I was a Billy Piper fan. I enjoyed her music and I certainly loved her in Doctor Who. Absolutely loved her, but I also loved Britney in the early days. I thought, you know, there was a lot going on with her in the early days. What is so great about Billie Piper, and I know you may not know her as personally as one might think, there is a fine quality to her, and Doctor Who just was the essence of it. I think so, absolutely. I think it was, it was you know, brought her to the attention of the public as an actress. I know this sounds very convoluted, but she was very much the equivalent to Joe Grant in the fact that she was a very now, no special powers like Joe, you know, 
hadn't she was supposed to have done you know my case a thing with unit but she hadn't done anything you know and billy was just an ordinary person very now girl and i think you know that was very much what joe was she has a great charisma and she the one thing you have to have and all the girls have shown that they have it and it is vital for a Doctor Who girl to have then, now, and in the future. You have to 100% believe what you're doing. You can't, there's no room for error there. And it starts with the TARDIS, doesn't it? As soon as you walk in and get the concept in your head that it actually is bigger on the inside than the yeah. outside, that is the world you're going to be in till you finish that series. Well, you see, when I started it, um, CSO, don't forget we had no computers in my day. Mm. Everything was, you know, people would stay up all night just trying to get one tiny little electronic sound, which you can do at the press of a button now. We couldn't do that then. So all those wonderful Dudley Simpson and you know, Brian Hodgson and all of, you know, those wonderful people, the costume designers, you know, everything we were trying to get, they just got, we had to borrow the first freeze frame from the sports department at the BBC and CSO, Colour Separation Overlay, which is now called blue screen or green screen or whatever they want to call it, we were experimenting with and I was one of the first, first people ever to work with that. So, you know, all of this has been an extraordinary thing watching all this slowly come into being you know so when you're doing things like that i mean i'd be sitting in a studio now i'm very short-sighted so i couldn't look on monitors to be able to work the green screen which made it really fascinating because you have to react to something that isn't there by god if you don't see it your mm. audience won't it can't be done in post-production as you've got yeah. to remember darling you're very young and adorable but back then, a computer was a huge room of machines. People say about wobbly sets and da-da-da. You know, you look at what we were able to do without computers. That's what people are now. What's why all the old Doctor Whos, because of the new Doctor Who, all the old Doctor Whos are selling like crazy. Another slice of Katie Manning from the archives. So much feedback on that chat. And glad I can share a little bit more with you of it here on Radio Notes. RadioNotesPodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Murch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. Radio Notes.